0: Hey, uh, welcome back to Calvary Life. This is a podcast for the membership of Calvary Baptist Church and also for anybody that uh, wants to hear about uh, local church life. And uh, I'm Charles Uptane.
1: Hey, I'm Paul Thompson.
0: And uh, we're here for another episode uh, just coming off of uh, Labor Day. And so this is really a big kickoff for us this week for um, our new schedule for Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings and Sunday nights. So really some exciting things going on at Calvary. I hope you have Uh, paid attention to that and know uh, where to go tomorrow night on Wednesday night and then also on Sunday with our open class format. Uh, The big thing is meet us at the Rock, meet us at the Recreation Center. Uh, That's where we're going to kind of start everything on Wednesday nights for adults uh, and and then uh, go from there. So I'm excited about the open class format. We've done it for six months now. Paul, what have you seen out of the open class uh, structure that you like?
1: Well, one thing I was going to say about the benefit of open classes is I'm starting to see some enthusiasm spread among members for them. Um, so we're kind of at that stage now where people who have participated in the first uh, round of this are um, realizing the benefits. And so that word is kind of spreading how much they've learned, how much they've um, grown through it, things they didn't know, things they had not thought about. And so that was that's really uh, an answer to our, to our aim in these. Um, people are growing in their sense of scripture, how it all connects, how it all fits, Old and New Testament alike, growing in the understanding of theology. And I think also a side benefit, which we promoted from the beginning, is they're starting to have some engagement with other people in the church, they really just don't brush shoulders with very much, right. because they're not in the same small group, or they sit in a different part of the of the sanctuary or the auditorium, and um, so they just don't really know them. So that part has been really good, too. But I think there's some good enthusiasm, there's been good consistency in it, and I think it's been a good challenge to us, too, just to teach well and just see that level of teaching grow. So yeah, I'm excited for what's going to be coming on Wednesday nights, and really I'm excited for the whole fall. This is a great time to just renew your commitment to your local church. Um There's that's just a a critical element of your spiritual growth and development. And we're offering some things I think are going to be super, super beneficial uh, to that end.
0: Yeah, And the last thing to say to that, obviously, well, I say obviously, the last thing to say to that is Sunday nights are beginning every week now, starting this Sunday. And um, we're starting with a fellowship afterwards, just kind of kicking it off. Um, but uh, these are family services, but they're not, we don't mean family in the word of your local family, your household family. What we're talking about there is the Calvary family. So we are a family of faith, and uh, we want to do things that families do. So we're going to talk uh, about um, family business. We're going to pray together. We're going to talk about needs. Uh, we're going to share together, worship together. All those things that the church family should be doing together are really going to be the focus of Sunday night. And that starts this week in the sanctuary every Sunday night at
1: 5. I love this statement I saw on Twitter this uh, past week from Matt Smethurst. He said, Nothing grows a Christian like a serious commitment to a single church week in and week out for years. Not conferences, not social media, not even personal devotions. The church is where mature Christians are slowly forged in the fires of mundane faithfulness. And I hope that will encourage you and challenge you just to come and take part of this. So Sunday nights, I think, are just going to be a great new element to what we're doing together as a church. As you said, a church family. But it is for your whole family, too. We want you to know, bring your kids in there. We want them to experience this. We want them to experience the 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 singing and hearing the word and testimonies and prayer and watching baptisms participating in in every aspect of the service so um, I think it's going to be a great time for starting starting this coming Sunday night yeah so it
0: will be exciting um, so today we do want to we have a new topic a topic actually that came from uh, a text to us it's a topic that someone was interested in and so uh, we're going to spend a few minutes talking about truth and grace. And uh, so I'm going to let Paul kind of start off with a few thoughts, and and then I'll ask some questions as we go through it.
1: When you start talking about grace, um, it becomes, I think, one of the, if not the most challenging um, subject matters in the New Testament, because I think if we if we teach grace freely and and fearlessly, and what I mean by that is. Sometimes I think there's a tendency, maybe it's subconscious, but there's a tendency in preaching and teaching to hold back a little bit on the full force of grace for fear of what people might do with that information. Yeah, That idea that, wait, I'm acceptable in Christ, my good deeds, my good works, even my obedience does not make me more pleasing to Him. I'm already pleasing to Him because of Christ, and that the righteousness that God requires of me is a righteousness that only Christ can provide to me, um, and... Though I am a great sinner, He's a far greater Savior. I mean, when we really just open the floodgates of biblical grace, if we're teaching it correctly, I think, that's going to naturally beg questions of people. So wait a minute, I can do whatever I want because God's going to forgive me, or no law applies to me. And then we start getting dangerously close to uh, antinomianism, just the idea that I, I don't have any law. There's nothing that guides me or binds me. But at the same time, that is a constant struggle of, of the gospel in the New Testament and the preaching in the New Testament, not just in the gospels, but the preaching through the epistles and letters of how do we balance law and grace? How do we balance, okay, how should I live, and yet how does God treat me through the lens of grace? And I hope one thing, I'll say this at the beginning, whatever we say in these next uh, several minutes, I hope people understand that we all are under grace if we're in Christ, and we have to be under grace. We sometimes think of this like this continuum of there's some people that, man, really, really need grace, and then, you know, I'm doing pretty good myself. If we're not careful, we run dangerously close to becoming like the Pharisees who didn't see their need for grace. And um, we all need grace. Without the grace of God, we would be destroyed. It's God's grace that keeps us all the time. It's God's grace that enables us to live in a way that pleases Him. It's God's grace that makes us acceptable to Him. So yeah, it's it's a huge subject, so we'll try to kind of dig down in some particular, some specifics about grace today.
0: Yeah, I remember I remember the first time that, uh, that I uh, heard your teaching on this when you were preaching through the book of Galatians, uh, and actually that was pretty early on uh, when you were here at Calvary, was going through the book of Galatians, and I remember myself having these conversations, and actually I came to you and talked to you about it for that exact reason is because it does bring up those questions of, okay, now, so what do I do with good works? What do I do with the idea that... Um, that no, I can't just live the way I want to. That doesn't make sense with what everything else says in the Bible. So how do we work with this grace um, that Galatians talks about so easily?
1: I think the Apostle Paul had the same challenge when he's preaching the gospel and describing this in the book of Romans. When you get to Romans chapter 6 and people are are hearing what he's saying, they're talking about the free grace that's given to us in Christ and how our sins are covered in him, whatever they may be. And Paul talks about his own great sinfulness and how God has forgiven him. And then, of course, the challenge must have been kind of like we get maybe when you're teaching grace to middle schoolers. Oh, so whatever I do, God's going to forgive me. And then 2 plus 2 equals 10, and now I can do whatever I want. It doesn't really matter anymore. And so Paul answers that, how shall we that are in Christ, how shall we who are dead to sin live any longer in sin? Um, He said, God forbid, we can't, We're, we're dead to sin. So then we start understanding rightly the flip side of that grace is not just the work of God in me to... To forgive me. It's the power of God in me to, to free me from those sins, but still doesn't answer some of those specific questions, you know, like we're being formed in the book of, book of Galatians where these additions were being made to the gospel. Like God will forgive you, so you take Christ, you take the work of Christ on the cross, you take the power of Christ displayed in the resurrection, you accept Christ as Savior and trust Him as your Lord, and you must also follow the Mosaic Law. You've also now if you're a Gentile, if you're a pagan, you've also got to be part of the covenant, which in that sense is Old Testament covenant, Abrahamic covenant, signified by circumcision. And, and Paul says, no, he makes it clear in the book of Galatians, when you add anything to Jesus, what Jesus has done completely, it's no longer good news. It's no longer grace. So anything of me that adds to that equation, anything that I do that I think contributes to my salvation, anything beyond... the Total work of Christ for my sake is no longer grace, and that's bondage. And he says, if anyone preaches that, let him be condemned. Let him be anathema. Um, even if it's me, Paul says, or an angel from heaven, he preaches that. Let them be condemned, because that's not that's not gospel. That's not good news.
0: Yeah, um, I appreciate you know what we've done on Wednesday night the last I guess two three years maybe now, when really digging deep into the Pentateuch, dig, digging deep into the law uh, of Genesis and Exodus specifically. Um, so in those, in those teachings and also just in the idea of the Ten Commandments, what, what should be a, a, a believing, a biblically believing uh, person's thought about the Ten Commandments when it's in the Old Testament and then how it applies to us? Or how do you look at that? How do you look at the Ten Commandments as a Christian?
1: It's kind of interesting, the, the disparity on this subject. So uh, a very popular pastor, Andy Stanley, wrote a book back in 18, I think, uh, called Irresistible, Reclaiming the, new, the News that Jesus Unleashed for the World. And in that, he made this statement on page 136. He says, The Ten Commandments have no authority over you, none. To be clear, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. Um, you can read the rest of the book to get the context if you want. I don't recommend it, and I think you'd be wasting your time. But I think the essence that he um, teaches in the book and what's reflected in that statement is absolutely, absolutely untrue. And uh, there are several reasons for that. One of the things we, we've talked about a lot as we've gone through the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, and then did the brief overviews of um, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy was that, one, we're looking at the revelation of the character of God. What yeah. What is God like? Yeah and the realization that God doesn't change. So, we, you know, we got to wrestle with that. There's, there are unchangeable, infinite attributes of God that maybe Abraham saw them not as clearly as perhaps we see them in the New Testament through the lens of the teaching of the apostles, etc., but they're unchanging attributes. So mm-hmm. whatever God demands of us is related to that. And then we have to think about, okay, so this, this Old Testament law that we call the Ten Commandments, specifically the Ten Commandments, you know, that's been the center of, of moral teaching um really since of the history of the church. Yeah. Um it's in our confessions, it's in our creeds, it's in our it's in our catechisms, the apostles' creed, the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments. I mean, these are all foundational things. How do we do discipleship? How do we raise children? How do we Live in right relationship with one another. You know, all of those, all of those things um, are, are clear, and the Ten Commandments aren't like other commandments in the Old Testament. They stand, they stand apart. Yeah. And in the New Testament, again, they're reiterated again, and again, and it's almost as if they're assumed. Like so, when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus asking, "What must I do to inherit eternal life?" What does Jesus say? He says, "You know the commandments." I mean, Jesus is affirming the commandments, not as a means to eternal life, but the validity of those commandments. Well, you know what God expects. Here's a foundational statement, what God expects. And so he responds, I have kept all these from my youth. Well, of course, Jesus hits him at the core, makes him realize he hasn't even kept the first one because he hasn't um, placed God first in all things. He has had other gods before him. He has had idols before him, which was his own wealth and personal pursuit, etc. But the essence of that is this. If you have kept all these commandments perfectly since you, then you're fine. Of course, we know, and the New Testament makes us understand that the Ten Commandments, as Paul reveals in Galatians, are like uh, like a teacher, or you know, the the old term, he's a, it's a pedagogue. He's uh, holding the spot, showing us this is who God is in comparison to who you are. Here's the law. What does the law reveal? Well, the law reveals my need for Christ, but it doesn't simply reveal my need for Christ. Like we wouldn't say, okay, the Ten Commandments show me, man, I haven't kept them all, so I'm guilty. Yeah. So I trust Christ now. I'm good. Yes, that's part, but it also continues to remind me not to be a thief, not to be a liar, not to be an adulterer, and so all of those things, um, I think, are reiterated. And I think that's probably also clear: the principles of the Ten Commandments are reiterated again in in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one distinction from those, which was a, a clear covenant law in the Old Testament, was that honoring of that Sabbath day in that way, where Jesus describes what the Sabbath day is for. Hebrews speaks a great deal of, of what the Sabbath is for, our rest in Christ and Jesus' fulfillment for the Sabbath. But those principles that we see repeated and repeated um, again and again, Old and New Testament, I think, are clear. They're definitive you know, standards of right and wrong, and they don't change. That they they don't change for from generation to generation.
0: Yeah, and and really to me part of that for the Christian is is except not is accepting the idea that God has given this new heart that now has the affection towards Him, and so when we then look at the Ten Commandments and see what God what God's character is like, wouldn't it make sense? Obviously, that that's what we are going to want to keep and do is to be close to God in those ways because of the new heart we have.
1: Yeah, and and that's even what Deuteronomy talks about. So. You know, in Deuteronomy uh, he tells we're commanded to have, to circumcise our hearts. And then in Deuteronomy there's a prophetic promise that God will circumcise our hearts. We know he does that through the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um so you know when we look at those commandments moving forward it's again it's here, here's the model, here's the precedence um, that we see set in the Old Testament. God delivered a people, he rescued a people, he made those people his own and then he said, here's the covenant under which you will live. In right relationship with me, and then He gives the law. In the New Testament, we see a similar pattern. God rescues us, He saves us, He makes us His own because of Christ, we are now delivered, and because we're in Christ, and because we've been given that new heart, which is what regeneration is by the Holy Spirit, we're given this desire to live in a way that honors Him. And so in the Old Testament, the phrase that that binds us as christian I'm sorry, in the New Testament, the phrase that binds us as Christians is the law of Christ. Mm-hmm. We're under the law of Christ. And Christ summarizes the law much like um, Paul does when he says, uh, Romans 13, for instance, Romans 13, 8 and 9, he says, uh, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. All these commandments are summed up in this word, love your neighbor as yourself. And that you know, it's what Jesus was summarizing. He summarized the whole law and the prophets in this, love God, with your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind, love your neighbor as yourself. And we can see how those, even the Ten Commandments are summarizing those. But the law of Christ to live, this law of love to live like Christ, that's what we're under. But it doesn't mean that we're under no law.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, another question that uh, a lot of times comes up is the world we live in obviously doesn't, um, doesn't believe in absolute truth. It believes in relative truth that everything's right for the own person. So... Uh, when we're trying to minister or trying to share the gospel with people and we see sin in someone's life, uh, we see a lifestyle that doesn't line up with um, the Old or New Testament and what we should obey, what, how, does, how does a believer uh, maybe be, be accepting of that but not accepting of that, if that makes sense? What, what should we do with that as a believer to be able to have an audience to share the gospel but also standing on the absolute truth that is in Scripture, the things that are immoral versus moral?
1: I think there are probably three different ways that we typically would handle that. One would be um, we just we just disregard those moral requirements, those moral conditions, the expectations of God, and we try to share the gospel only in terms of, of benefits, um, happiness, and joy, and self-discovery, and eternal life, and what, whatever benefits we imagine or or believe that come with the gospel, and we just ignore any of the rest. So we just present it almost like that person is is in a moral vacuum, mm-hmm. you know, that they're just neutral. Look, if you come to Christ, you're going to have all these good things, and you, all this is going to be perfect in your life. We try to present the gospel that way. I think that's not the way. Um, I think another way that we do it is we only preach law as if we're saying to people, and though we may not be saying this exactly what we may be Communicating is that clean your life up, fix all these things. Um, if you stop doing all these things, then God might accept you. And of course, that's not good news either. Um, we come to Him and, as sinners and He changes us. Um, you know, a third way, and this is probably where most people are struggling today, is, is this way. It's we don't know what to do with those things. So we kind of yeah. ignore them and we talk in vague generalities. So we'll talk about sin as concept, um, or we'll even take some of the language of Scripture, which is meant to be strong and all-encompassing, and we actually reduce it to weakness, where we say, well, all have sinned. And then we're left with this just sort of, I don't know, this flimsy theology of all sins are basically the same. So yeah, my sin, I, you know, I ate too much at lunch, is the same sin as you living in a same-sex relationship. You know, yeah. those are not comparable things, that they don't fit on the same plane or the same tier. And there are greater sins. That's a, that could be another subject for another podcast. Jesus said that. There are greater sins than others, and there's greater judgment for sins. But the, the challenge is this, what do we do with that person? So we want them to hear the gospel. We know that's first... But there's this impediment because to come to Christ does require repentance. I think we have to preach both the call for repentance and the offer of grace simultaneously and trust and pray that the truth of God's Word will be used by God's Spirit to bring appropriate conviction and a response of repentance. And then he will grant them that repentance. You know that's a granting of God. He grants them repentance, and they'll believe. But we can't hold back. So, if I'm talking to this person about Christ, for instance, you know, I'm trying to have this this conversation about who Jesus is and and what Jesus has done for me and why we all need Jesus. And then that that person seems open to it, but they say, you know, but I but I'm this or I've done this or I'm doing this. Or then my honest response to that is. Well, let me show you what the Scriptures say and why you have to repent. And as you repent, there's forgiveness in Christ, but we can't get around repentance. And I guess maybe the bigger answer to your question is this, or the shorter answer is, I really fear a modern pragmatic philosophy that puts evangelism as the ultimate aim as if you can evangelize apart from all-encompassing truth. hmm I think we have to, to just simply trust, no, it's not palatable, but um, conviction of sin is not palatable. I think there has to be an adequate brokenness over sin. And again, I'm not saying that that person is going to understand every sin they've committed and every sin that they're involved with right now and repent of it and then be able to come to Christ, but there has to be a sense of, of Isaiah chapter 6, you know, standing before God, um, here I am a sinner, I'm a woe is me, you know, woe is me, I'm a sinner. Um, That idea of of I stand before a holy God and these things are contrary to him, so what do I do now? Throw yourself at his mercy. Mm -hmm. Know that his grace is greater than your sin. And then we lead to that secondary application of grace, or that's not secondary, but that second application of grace. Not only will he forgive you, but he will put in you a new heart and he'll give you the power and the ability to do what pleases him and that application of grace in your life that that is that is setting me free. So I think, you know, to that original question that was posed to us this grace and this grace and truth, I think we need to be really liberal with with giving grace. I think grace liberally given is the right response to genuine repentance. I think grace liberally given is a misapplication of grace when it's given to the non-repentant. Mhm. You know so if someone we, we just have to give them grace. No, you have to give them truth. Truth is what leads to repentance. Grace is the response to repentance. Grace is not in place of it. So truth and grace, it's a it's a both and and we're always on that continuum of of needing both and it, this is the truth. But uh I, again, we've we've got to we've got to rightly teach what repentance looks like. I mean antinomianism, you know, that that no law that's 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 an epidemic today. Yeah, and we excuse it with biblical terms. That's just a carnal Christian, or you know, I know God's going to forgive me, or I know I'm in His grace. That's man. That's just an absolute. That's absolutely contrary to both Galatians, which gives us abundant free grace theology to us, and Romans, because in in Galatians we're not to be enslaved again. We're self enslaving now. God set you free, wanted you to be free, but when you remain in sin, you just you're just self enslaved.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think the antinomianism really is is towards the, the church. You know, it's towards people who understand grace or, or have 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 tried to or said they've repented and turned from their sin at one point. And I think that's something we as the church face a lot of. You know, and, and we need help in that because we, we as we're saying you're saying we need to give a lot of grace to people even within the church. But then again, um, you know, we have people within the church who who walk around. Uh, with a sin, and what do we as the as the church family do with that? You know, it's just not all grace there.
1: That's where you have to. That's where you have to um, consider what is the greatest commandment of the law, and it is to love. But what does it mean to love? That's a real challenge. Yeah, you know, to love. So, to love, I think, absolutely requires truth. That's why you see all these admonitions to Paul, of Paul to Timothy and to Titus. Then it starts with preaching the word, tell the truth. Your best act of love towards them is loving them with the truth. It's not loving to leave people in deception and, and in sin. And, and so, yeah, in Galatians, we're to help a brother, we're help a brother up, someone who's fallen. We should be there to help them or to bear one another's burdens. But we don't do that by condoning sin because sin is the burden. Yeah. You know, sin sin is why they're burdened. Sin is why they're in the ditch that we're helping them out of. Sin is what their great struggle is. So we have to speak the truth to that and then give abundant grace, give free grace, liberal grace to those who are repentant. But you give truth in love to those who are Uh, presumptuous about grace or to those who are obstinate or to those who, you know, who refuse grace. I think where the church has to guard ourselves, as we always have, we have to guard ourselves against legalism. You know, and when I say legalism, I mean that in one of two ways. Like in Galatians, the legalism was adding something to the gospel. Yeah. You know, so if we say, yes, we want you to come to faith in Jesus and know Him when you do your sins, forgiven, plus we also want you to do this. We have to be super careful that we won't do that even unintentionally and on minor things. Um, you know, a young man comes into church and he's wearing a you know, ball cap and a, and a tank top. And, and one, for my own upbringing in church, I'm thinking, man, that's not cool. We don't wear, guys don't wear hats in church. Yeah, That's been ingrained in me in my whole life. Also, I'm thinking with sensitivity to the congregation and those who, who've been in church for a long time thinking they're not going to respond well to this. And oh, man, I don't know what someone might say to him. But then I have to also challenge myself. Is this legalism or do I give grace here? Yeah. plus what he doesn't know and what he hasn't experienced, et cetera, et cetera, and being careful not to add anything to the law. The other aspect of legalism I think we have to be careful of is not elevating things that are, how would we say, unclear in Scripture or yeah. even not scriptural, that we elevate to a binding requirement for other Christians, yeah. um, violating the law of liberty that they have in Christ—that yeah. those things aren't there.
0: Would you say in that you're talking about like matters of conscience?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, like, like in the maybe in the '50s where where my parents were growing up, um, your parents growing up in the '50s, and things and what sort of things was the church speaking out on in those days? You know, you didn't even to this day. You know, if my mom's listening, she would say some of these things. You know, we are playing cards. Yeah. Um, um, You're playing pool. Christians don't play pool. You don't play cards. You don't play pool. You don't go fishing on Sundays. You don't go to the movies on Sundays. Um, Christians don't dance. You know, all those kind of things were things that were very, very important to a generation. I went to a private Christian school that that had a strict set of rules, independent, fundamentalist, Baptist school, and things that were deemed Christian. So for men, that meant certain types of haircuts, and um, wearing a belt with your shirt tucked in, and women didn't wear pants, and um, you know those kind of things well th- those things create a picture of what Christianity is for some in the world and that's not that's not what it is yeah and those things are um, I guess the technical theological word would be um, adiphora, things indifferent those are I mean they can matter or they don't necessarily matter modesty matters I'm not sure if having your shirt tucked in is on the same plane as that right you know Um where I would say there's a biblical principle of men being men and looking like men and women being women and looking like women, I'm not sure that we can say a certain haircut does that. Um, You know, those kind of things. So we have to be very, very careful that we're, we're not imposing on others those preferences or, you know, even things that we feel are convictions for us. You know, if you have a conviction that something is a sin, the Bible's clear about that, then you should not do it. Yeah. You know, if, if it's sin to me to do that and I violate my conscience believing this to be a sin, the Bible makes it clear that that is, in fact, a sin for me. But if the Bible's unclear on that, you know, this goes all the way, you know, this is back to, you know, Romans chapter 14 and and the, the meat-sacrificed idols and the weaker brother and all those kind of demands, um, if it's not clear in Scripture, then we shouldn't impose that unclarity on others, you know. Um, R.C. Sproul had a, a very interesting message, a challenging message he gave years ago. You can look this one up, you can find it online, but the audio and the transcript called The Tyranny of the Weaker Brother. And in that, he talks about what is a Christian's response to the weaker brother. Well, the weaker brother is really not, Paul was not the weaker brother. Yeah. Um, mature Christians shouldn't be the weaker brother, so that shouldn't describe us. But in, still in that same sense, there's certain things that we would be careful of not to harm the fragile conscience or the developing faith or understanding of a, of a weaker or younger brother, but at the same time, we should never give in to the tyranny of that weaker brother when all of a sudden those weaker brothers, who are less mature in the faith, less understanding of the Scriptures, less understanding of our freedom in Christ, and they begin to impose that and then all of a sudden they become the new legislators of yeah, what they're, morality they're is writing and the law. <laughs> and that's not what, you know, that's not what the Bible requires of us either. So anyway, that's a good one for you to read if you have some questions on that subject. You need to read Romans 14 and say, "Yeah, I get it. Here's what we're supposed to do for the weaker brother. But how do we also challenge the weaker brother and not allow them to prevail over, you know, everything?" Yeah.
0: Yeah, this um it's a subject that I think, you know, it's one of those things where you have to study and you just have to it's a balancing act, you know, in trying to um, love those around us, but also seeing that that love sometimes has, does, sometimes has truth in it that we have to give and be willing to do
1: that. You know, when, when someone has te- texted us about just that daily just that daily struggle of truth and grace in, in life, I get it. I think uh, most of us are probably probably not nearly, and I'm not speaking of that person, I'm talking of us in generalities, most of us are not nearly as strong in either would be my fear. My fear would be for me if I feel any conviction on that subject. Would be this. I'm, I would be. I would tend to, in my natural self be much more towards the middle, as in this. Um, if I know what you're doing is wrong, I know what God says, um, but I'm just not willing to. I'm not willing to challenge you on it. Yeah. Gently, lovingly, or otherwise. I just. I just don't. I ignore. You know. If I care about you, either as a as a brother or sister in Christ. Or as a family member, as a son or a daughter, or a spouse, if I care about you, then I have to be willing to say, um, friend, brother, whoever. This is what God says. Yeah. This is what God says, and let God's word speak. I, I'm afraid that we err, thinking that that's grace, but that's not. That's just that's just weakness. That's just that's just cowardice. Yeah. Um, so grace isn't saying, "Man, I see." You know, he you know she continues to do this you know you know my wife continues to do this and i never say anything or my husband continues to talk to me this way or use this language around the kids or you know he he continues how, how do i speak up and say here's what god's word says so i think we err in being too soft on truth thinking it's grace but it's not it's just it's just weakness or right. indifference or cowardice on the other hand i think we also err on not being strong enough in grace when people genuinely do repent, even if it's imperfectly. We're not willing to give the grace that Christ did. I mean, devotional we shared a little while back in staff meeting from Lamentations chapter three, his mercies are new every morning. Um, His mercies are new every morning. And I think about, man, how far short of that are we? Because we just hold grudges and we keep score. And we, so I would like to think those people closest to me would say, he's going to, he's going to tell you the truth. And you may not like what he says, but he'll do it because he loves you. I mean, again, I'm speaking an ideal. I'm not self extolling here. But he'll do it because he loves you. But you'll not find a more forgiving person. Yeah. You know, if if, if you if you respond to that, and say, you know, you're right. I, help me. How do I how do I not do that? I'm, I'm sorry, I did that. Um, man, uh, you know, show me a better way that we just be lavish with grace, because I think that's the message that's. I think that's the message we see in Galatians and in Romans—that just the lavishness of grace.
0: Yep. Well, that's great. I think I think that's that covers it well. Is there any final comments or anything that you didn't get to mention that you'd like to? Well,
1: you know, one of the questions that we we talked about just a little while ago um, before we started recording was you get to First Corinthians nine verse nineteen, and people use this idea of you know where Paul says, "I've become all things to all men that I might win some." Man, I think that's just... I want to throw that out there as kind of an addendum here um, to what we're talking about. Or even even the inference that that Jesus, who ate with sinners, you yeah. know, it's just kind of yeah. something I just hear all the time. Um, Jesus never, ever condoned sin. Jesus never became a sinner to find acceptance with sinners. Jesus was among sinners like a doctor is among sick people. And that's the analogy that we see in Scripture. Mm-hmm. It's not... Um, the healthy that need a physician, it's the sick. So the one who came to save sinners must necessarily be with sinners. I think part of our problem in our misinterpretation of Jesus, both his actions and intentions, were, one, seeing ourselves not as sinners. He was with those kind of people. No, he was with us kind of people. Yeah, He was with us, sinners. Um, and though our sins may be different, sin makes us all sinners. But again, what was Jesus' purpose, a redemptive purpose? purpose. So he wasn't he wasn't um, removing himself for their offenses. You know, if we if we take it as our tact to remove ourselves, and that's what was happening even in Romans 14. You know, mm-hmm. well, not only will we not eat the meat that's being sacrificed to idols, we won't sit with those who eat meat sacrificed to idols. Man, if if we take the tact of removing ourselves for those secondary issues from all people, then we've got to become hermits. Right. Um, because we just can't. We can't function that way. But Jesus' intent was always redemptive. He didn't become a sinner. Now, people accuse him of things. You know, They, they, they accuse Jesus of being a glutton and a winebibber yeah. because he was with gluttons and bibbers. He, he was there among them. Um, but doesn't mean that he sinned like they did, and, and he didn't see himself in those terms for sure. And when, when Paul is talking about that, Paul is not talking about I'm compromising, Paul's simply talking about how do I learn the culture and speak to the context of whomever I'm around, and and I think that's just that's just common sense, and and that's just wisdom. That's just and that's love. So, so for instance, um, I used to where where I would, where I was pastoring before in Jensen Beach, I had an older man in the church who came up to me one day after service. He says, "Man, you know, I really appreciate." You're preaching the way that you preach, because you make it so simple that even a fourth grader could understand. He meant it as a compliment, but I, I sat there thinking, man, is this, am I really, am I teaching like on a fourth grade level? <laughs> um, and now I have to guard myself against the opposite of not teaching in a way a fourth grader could understand. But it just reminded me, if I'm talking to a fourth grader, I'm not going to try to use all the slang of a fourth grader. You know, I do it sometimes jokingly now, like with my own 20-something kids Uh, Year-old kids use the terms they use, but usually just to make a joke of myself. You know, Um, I'm not trying to be you, but I want to try to understand where you're coming from. Yeah, and I'm going to speak differently in that context. I'm going to speak differently to a group of leaders in the church than I would to new Christians. Not different work, different truth, but you know, different context. That sort of thing, and that's what Paul's talking about. You know, Paul understood. Paul understood the philosophy of the first century, and he could speak to it. And so, when he's uh, on the Areopagus, Mars Hill there in Athens, he can stand up and he can speak to the philosophers, and he can speak to the false gods. When he's in Ephesus, he can talk about Diana. Um, that's what he means. Um, to the Jews, he could speak the lingo of Judaism. Yeah, that's that's all we're talking about. He's not talking about compromise here. I become all things all people. No, no, that's that's not what it is. Um, so anyway, man, I hope that's I hope that's a little helpful, but. For us, we have to determine, how do I live in a way that's pleasing to God? How do I love God, and how do I demonstrate that with the way that I live? We have to look at the the New Testament interpretations, Old Testament law, because so many of those things are reiterated again and again. We're going to—and sorry, Charles, I'm on a tangent now. You mentioned <laughs> anything else to say. So talking about the law, we're going to hit this really good um, in the spring as we go through the Gospel of Matthew. Because yeah. there's going to be Jesus talking, giving the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, you should not— Well, what does God think about the law? You've heard that it said you should not commit adultery. Okay, good, I'm not doing that. I haven't committed adultery with anyone. But I say unto you, if you've got lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. And everybody goes, oh, man, whoa. You shall not murder. You've heard it said. But I say to you, if anyone has hatred, you've already committed murder. The elevation of, of this, and so God didn't dispense of the law in Christ, but through Christ and through the work of the Holy Spirit, Now we're enabled to do what pleases Him. We want to do what we didn't want to do before. We're able to do what we weren't able to do before, and that's the work of Christ in us. So I'll leave it there for today.
0: All right, so um, uh, come see us on Wednesday and Sunday. Like I said, we're excited about the fall schedule uh, starting Wednesday night, so come be a part of that, 6 o'clock in The Rock, and then uh, Sunday morning we still have life groups. Your life groups can meet at... At uh, eight thirty, and then our open classes also will start from the rock at eight thirty in the morning. Uh, so we hope to see you there, and then we'll all gather together back in the fellowship center. So we're moving back to the fellowship center. Uh, we'll be there this coming Sunday at ten o'clock for worship, and then back again five p.m. for our family worship service on Sunday night. So we hope to see you there. And, and
1: all those details are right there on the website. So you know that's that's. Your probably your best resource. Go in there. You can see you can see what open classes are, are made available to you. Just a great lineup. I mean, we've, we've thought through this well. We've, we've planned through this well. We've prayed through this. I, I think we're offering just some really good, beneficial stuff coming up um, this fall, so I'm excited about it.
0: Yep. So remember, we are for God, for Dothan, for the world. See you next time.